the face of the planet is a man-made catastrophe. We need to sound the alarm. This is an emergency, this is a climate crisis, and we need to act now. Because if we don't act now, we risk to create an irreversible situation in which it, whatever we do in the future, we will no longer be able to limit to 1.5 degrees the growth in temperature in the end of the century. And why is it so important to stay below 1.5 degrees? Because even at one degree, people are dying from the climate crisis. Because that is what the United Science calls for. And we're here to say to all of you, on behalf of the House of Representatives and the Congress of the United States, we're still in it. We're still in it. It seems like that connection to how people actually experience and understand climate change is often missing. And then we go, why don't more people care about climate change? Why would they? While the entire nation is coping with the stresses and strains related to the novel coronavirus, African-American communities are being truly devastated by the pandemic. Black Americans are struggling with a disproportionate death toll from COVID-19 and severe financial pain from the economic downturn. The current crisis has exposed pre-existing racial disparities created by deep-seated social, economic, and political factors. These same underlying issues also make African-Americans more vulnerable to health damage from pollution, as well as from heat waves, storms, and other effects of climate change. Meanwhile, African-Americans are missing out on wealth creation opportunities in the clean energy economy, which stands to help solve these underlying issues, bringing jobs and environmental benefits to communities that need it the most. We grapple with all of these issues on this week's episode of Political Climate a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host of this show, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. This is episode five in our monthly Path to Zero series, brought to you with support from the public policy think tank Third Way. With this series, we're exploring what it will take to reach net zero emissions by 2050, including how to engage with a wide variety of Americans in this mission. On this episode, we look at how COVID-19 and climate change are affecting African-American communities and how these issues can be tackled in tandem. In place of a conversation with my usual co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton, I'll be joined this episode by Naomi Davis, a grassroots leader and green village builder in Chicago's South Side. I also speak to Professor Tony Reams at the University of Michigan about the issue of energy justice and some preliminary research on how African-American communities are thinking about climate and energy issues. But we can't ignore the crisis at hand. So to put this discussion in the context of COVID-19, I'm joined now by Jared DeWeese, Senior Communications Advisor for the Climate and Energy Program at Third Way. Jared, how you doing? Hi, Julia. How's it going? Pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> good. We also have Akuna Cook here. She's a senior fellow at Third Way. Hi, Akuna. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Julia. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Of course. So we are discussing the relationship between African-American communities and the issue of climate change, but also putting it in the current moment where these communities are being disproportionately affected by the coronavirus. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But first, I wanted to ask you, Jared, why is it that Third Way is specifically interested in the African-American community 
in climate change? What is prompting you guys to look further into the issues and how they're being felt there? So, Julia, at Third Way, we understand that climate change will cause an unequal burden on minority communities, specifically on African-American communities. Systemic racism has forced African-Americans to live in neighborhoods and communities that have been deemed hazardous by a system called redlining. You know, for example, a 2017 report from the NAACP and the Clean Air Task Force found that more than a million African-Americans live within a half mile of an oil and gas facility. African-Americans breathe dirtier air and by consequence have a higher rate of asthma than their white counterparts and are more susceptible to upper respiratory infections, like the novel coronavirus, which we'll get to later. You know, in addition, we know that climate change, if left unmitigated, will exacerbate all other socioeconomic issues like unemployment, access to health care, among other issues. And we're not saying African-Americans are the only minority group facing disproportionate impact from climate change and environmental injustice, but that's just the area we're focused on right now. So you mentioned the coronavirus and uh, this respiratory illness that is, in fact, harming African-American communities disproportionately. And we had some numbers come out recently that really showed that starkly. Akuna, can you run us through the figures showing how these communities have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic? Sure. So, Julia, as soon as this pandemic started, we recognized that African-American communities would be harmed disproportionately. You know, there's a saying that when America catches a cold, the black community gets pneumonia. And so we knew that even just in terms of the economic impact, that there would be a disproportionate, um, uh, you know, impact on the black community just because of the longstanding racial uh, gaps in income, wealth and employment. But what was striking is that as the mortality figures started coming out, we saw that African-Americans were actually dying at higher rates. And so you saw, uh, you know, states like Michigan, where African-Americans make up 14 percent of the population, but the COVID-related deaths were 40 percent. Even more striking in Louisiana, where African-Americans make up just 35 percent of the population, but were 70 percent of COVID deaths, similar figures in Milwaukee and Chicago. Uh, in fact, in one city, St. Louis, 100% of their COVID deaths were African-Americans. And so we started to see that there was a real stark difference in the way that these, uh, that COVID was impacting that these health disparities that have frankly have existed in the African-American community for a long time, but that COVID was bringing them to the forefront uh, Uh, based on the death disparities, the disparities in deaths uh, between African-American communities and other communities. Akuna, you mentioned that there are these underlying issues that are being brought to the fore right now amid coronavirus. And I want to talk about those in a moment and talk about them also as they relate to climate change. But first, I want to ask you what you think policymakers need to do to tackle the immediate crisis right now of how American communities are being devastated by the coronavirus. What would you have them do? So first and foremost, um, you know, I'll say Third Way put out uh, a plan, Corona Care for Everyone, to address health care and getting universal testing so that everyone, regardless of income levels, regardless of where you live, can be tested uh, both to see whether you've had coronavirus um, and have developed antibodies, but also 
to see if you actively have the infection. I think that that's something that's going to be critical to having us be able to return to normal life and resuming economic activity. Um, the second part is ensuring that everyone gets proper coverage and treatment. And that means that we need to ensure that people who are coming down with symptoms but have either, you know, either they're uninsured or underinsured, um, which, you know, a lot of people in this country are, that they're not afraid to go and either get tested or get treatment because of an inability to afford that treatment. One of the solutions that has come up is increasing the federal matching rate to state Medicaid programs. Um, a, a recent McKinsey uh, a, a report you know, illustrated one of the big gaps in the Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act, which is that 65% of Black Americans actually are concentrated in 16 states. The overwhelming majority of those 16 states have not expanded Medicare, uh, Medicaid, excuse me, under the Affordable Care Act. And actually, if you look at the, you know, not to get too political about this, but if you look at where Black Americans live within those states, a lot of them live under local governments or cities that are run by Democratic mayors. And so thinking more broadly about how to deliver healthcare to uh, Black Americans who are living in places where their states are not necessarily responsive to the realities of, of coronavirus and all of the protective measures that need to be taken, but still availing all of those communities to the testing that's necessary and the treatment that's necessary. Interesting. Jared, I'm curious, is there a similar approach to tackling, say, higher pollution levels in African-American communities, how would you go about implementing policy solutions? Is there, is there any similarity to be drawn between that um, pollution climate change uh, issue and and what Akuna just described here with respect to coronavirus? I mean, absolutely. You know, Harvard researchers recently found that even the smallest increase of exposure to any common air pollutant is associated with a 15% increase in the death rate from COVID-19 on top of increased risk of lung cancer and health problems. And fossil fuel plants are among the top emitters of this particle, along with other pollutants that can cause or worsen asthma and shortness of breath. And in part due to a history, like I mentioned earlier, of redlining, African-Americans live closer to fossil fuel infrastructure than the rest of the population. So, yeah, there are loads of policies that we could implement in African-American communities that could address some of these issues. In the Trump administration, you know, gutted one of the um, one of the places that would have helped with this is the civil rights. Uh, office in the EPA. And this was the office that handled issues of environmental injustice. But that office has been gutted along with a lot of other, you know, offices in the Trump administration. Um, we've seen the rollback of methane emissions, which is another common air pollutant. We've seen, you know, the relaxation of, of CAFE standards. That's our fuel efficiency standards. And all of these things will serve to harm the African-American community and create more environmental injustice. Okuda just talked about testing and there is an immediate crisis, a healthcare crisis on our hands. When do you think it makes sense to have these uh, climate energy solutions enter the conversation? When's the right timing for that? I mean, I think Congress has done the right thing at the beginning, you know, focusing on testing, you know, getting people, um, you know, safe and secure. That's the first thing. But we do have to have this parallel conversation about why this is impacting certain communities more than others. 
Congressman Cedric Richmond out of Louisiana sent a letter to Speaker Pelosi asking for a select committee investigation as to why the mortality rate in the African-American community is so high. And we've seen a letter to HHS from Senators Harris, Warren, and Booker asking for the Department of Health and Human Services to include demographic information, including race and ethnicity, when testing COVID-19 patients. You know, here, these are some of the things that we've seen happen, and we still have to continue those things along with making sure that people are getting testing. And the reason why we have to do that is so that, you know, this won't be the last pandemic that we'll experience. So we have to make sure that, you know, at the same time we're addressing immediate concerns, we're also looking toward the future to make sure these things don't happen again. Yeah, I was just going to add on to what Jared's saying, which is that I think this is a, the exact time for us to be looking at this problem comprehensively. You know, the disparities that exist uh, in the African-American communities around economics, uh, around wealth, around income, around employment, these are the exact same factors that are contributing to the disparities we're seeing with COVID deaths. So if you think about the jobs that uh, a lot of you know, African-American communities and we are over-indexed in the exact kinds of service jobs that are at the front lines of uh, the COVID pandemic, whether it be uh, working as grocery store cashiers, whether it be working as home health aides. Um, these are the jobs that are at the forefront. We are more likely to be dependent on public uh, transportation. We're more likely to be living in areas that are crowded where it's difficult to practice social distancing. And then I'll also say something about the chronic uh, illnesses that have been identified as underlying conditions that aggravate COVID-19. So whether you're talking about uh, elevated rates of diabetes or heart disease, asthma, all of these diseases that are really diseases of poverty that really speak to lack of access to, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, lack of access, you know, living in food deserts, for example, uh, lack of access to seeing uh, doctors regularly for preventative care, uh, living in areas where you don't have large numbers of uh, healthcare workers that can attend to your needs. Uh, and that doesn't even get into the disparities that we see that uh, exist regardless of class lines, such as the disparities in maternal uh, mortality, where you know black mothers, regardless of race, are more likely to die in childbirth. And so these are systemic problems that exist in our country that need to be addressed. And yes, we have an immediate crisis in front of us, but as we think about what how to address this immediate crisis, we need to be thinking comprehensively about how we start to dismantle some of these systems so that when the next uh, pandemic comes along, when the next uh, health crisis comes along, that we're better prepared. You know, even when African-Americans do get to see a doctor, you know, are the doctors taking them seriously? Are they taking their concerns seriously? Because it, we've seen, you know, uh, you know, reports that say that doctors don't take African-American patients seriously. Mm -hmm. So when when African-American patients are coming in with COVID or think they have COVID, are they being taken seriously and are they letting them go home and die? You know, there's so many other, you know, impact, you know, so many other things that African-Americans are facing that, you know, a lot of the, the larger mainstream community just don't recognize. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I have to wonder if it's the same with pollution related illnesses. There's research that shows, you know, birth defects, obviously asthma and other illnesses all connected to pollution. Um, but it's so almost it's not so visible. Right. So it just people's concerns may be dismissed when there really is a cause and reaction happening there. 
that does have a solution that needs to be implemented. I mean, we can even just look at Louisiana. Like, you know, there's this 85 mile stretch along the Mississippi River from Baton Rouge to New Orleans. It's called Cancer Alley. And it's lined with refineries and petrochemical facilities next to residential areas. And this is a largely African-American area. And they have witnessed more COVID-19 deaths than the rest of the country. Mm, yeah. Thinking about the solutions, how can African-American leaders be brought into the decision-making process? One thing that has happened in the environmental movement is historically it has been largely led by white Americans. Um, and some local leaders say that they haven't found a seat at the table, especially mm. when it comes to things like utility proceedings that mm. require often lawyers and lots of preparation and a lot of meetings that you need to attend in order to be heard. What would be some ways to engage African-American leaders in these types of processes going forward so they really have a voice and a seat at the table? Akuna? I'm so glad that you asked this question. I remember in the first few days of when, you know, the country, the government um, started to take COVID-19 uh, more seriously, uh, particularly, I think it was right after the first unemployment numbers came out. And I was watching cable news and I was watching a segment and it was the host and three white men talking about the economic impacts that COVID-19 will have on the country. And I just thought to myself, thinking back to 2008, the last uh, financial crisis and the devastating impact that the response had on African-American homeownership, it really would be great if we had some people of color in these conversations, economists, policy experts, talking about how to uh, ensure that Black communities could survive the economic impact. And I, you know, as we've started to have to see the devastating impacts and these disparities, we certainly have more conversations and I'm seeing more diversity even in the conversation. But I think it needs to go further than that. I think that we need to be thinking about how to give, you know, within Congress, give the Congressional Black Caucus an, a, a, a more prominent role in, in crafting the response and making sure that they're getting feedback from all parts of black the black community so from small business owners who don't typically interact with people of congress um, all the way to uh, home health workers that are on the front lines and making sure that there are diverse voices voices from the expert communities so economists that are helping to shape this who look and think deeply about the black economy making sure that policymakers at the local level have an elevated voice. As I mentioned, you know, 52% of Black Americans live in states that have Republican governors. The overwhelming majority of Black Americans in these states, however, live in cities that are controlled by Democratic mayors. And so thinking creatively about how the federal government interacts with uh, cities that represent, you know, mayors that have uh, large constituencies of Black communities and being able to interact with them directly, because we're seeing that a lot of this response is politicized and we just need to make sure that you not only have diverse uh, experts and stakeholders around the table weighing in on um, the response, but also lawmakers and then policymakers themselves. Yeah. And we'll shortly we'll hear from a grassroots organizer in Illinois about her community's efforts to have their voices heard in crafting legislation, energy legislation to that point. 
So that's the policy side. On the economic side, on when it comes to companies and entrepreneurs and creating wealth in these communities now and for the foreseeable future, especially now as we try to recover economically from this crisis, how can African-American entrepreneurs be supported, Jared? And I want to limit that to specifically in the clean energy sector, because that is a, a vibrant area for jobs. How is Third Way looking at this? How can you support Black American leadership in the entrepreneurial side of the clean energy economy? That's a great question, Julia. You know, in the last stimulus package, we saw some provisions for small businesses, and that includes minority-owned businesses. You know, as far as the clean energy economy, while we haven't seen Congress make any provisions in previous packages for clean energy businesses or technology specifically, there is talk that future packages might, and that could include tax credits for electric vehicle manufacturers, which could help stimulate job growth in cities like Detroit, which has a large African-American population, many of whom have been employed historically by the automotive industry. A couple of weeks ago, we had a Zoom virtual panel with uh, Gilbert Campbell, who co-founded one of the only minority-owned solar companies in the U.S. Clean energy credits and small business stimulus packages could help businesses like his and help promote other minorities to own companies like that one. There are a multitude of opportunities for African-Americans in the clean energy economy, from electricians to plumbers to roofers to engineers. But what's important is to make sure African-Americans are at the table creating the policies that will benefit them as well as to have the knowledge and access to these opportunities. Moving to politics, we are in an election year, which is almost easy to forget amid everything else going on, but it is a critical election year for a lot of people. Um, Where do you think that climate and energy issues will rank for African-American voters in 2020, Jared? Because as we've learned, coronavirus is an immediate acute crisis that this community is facing. Do you think there's any space for climate and energy to, to rank on people's agendas? Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting you ask this. You know, we've done some preliminary research on the African-American community as well as African-American climate. And in both sets of those re- that research, we didn't find that climate was a top-tier issue. But when we probed the groups that we met with, we found that many of their concerns were connected to climate, like health impacts, jobs, and the economy. Now, with the novel coronavirus, you know, the issue is likely to be pushed lower. But it's still not disconnected from what we're seeing, you know, with the Harvard study showing that African-Americans have higher mortality rate from COVID because of a long-term exposure to air pollution. It is all connected to climate and the environment. And, you know, what has to be done to make sure that these communities are African-American communities and, you know, minority communities are are involved in these issues is to show these connections. You know, everything is connected. We're, you know, we're all in this together. We may be all in this together, but there are communities that are going to be impacted more negatively than others. Akuna, for the final word here, I guess, how optimistic are you that these issues can be addressed in a comprehensive manner? It sounds great intellectually. There seems to be good reason and clearly real lived experiences that show how these issues of healthcare, pollution, climate, energy all interconnect. And yet it's so hard to have nuanced policymaking that really does address these in a bold and effective way. Are you optimistic that this crisis could create an opportunity for that? I'm actually optimistic that this crisis is creating several opportunities. You know, we do need to have the conversation about political power and economic power and how that translates to outcomes for Black communities. But I think in the short term, we can look at a few things. One, the fact that so many people in the Black community have lost their jobs does, in fact, create an immediate opportunity for us to re- and reposition a lot of these people for the future of work, which is now here. 
you know, as Jared mentioned in his answer around climate, there's heightened opportunities to learn um, for, for folks to get skills and become electricians and plumbers and working in the digital space. And so I think that that opportunity exists. But to your point that you made about this being an election year, you know, I think that we have all, you know, Black Americans, frankly, all Americans have seen how important it is to have leadership that is competent, but also leadership that has in mind the well-being of all Americans and thinking about how we can all move towards a future where we have equity and where our communities are adequately respected and where the policy responses that are coming out of, um, you know, from our leaders reflect the needs in our communities. And so um, I'm hopeful uh, and optimistic that this crisis has refocused us on the need to have a laser focus on building the kinds of economic and political structures in our community that allow us to hold leaders accountable for making sure they're being responsive to the needs of our communities. Akuna and Jared, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Naomi Davis lives in the community of West Woodlawn on the south side of Chicago. There, her organization, Blacks and Green, has been working to implement a new vision for a self-sufficient, sustainable community. Basically, we figured out that if we could deeply interweave the new green economy into the Black community of practices and policy and payments, that we could begin to reverse the gaping racial health wealth disparities in America. So the idea that we would be increasing household income of the present residents in a community by activating them inside the new green economy. Davis has been fighting to bring the new green economy to communities of color in Illinois for roughly a decade. In 2016, she finally got the breakthrough she was hoping for with the Illinois Future Energy Jobs Act. It's a landmark piece of legislation that committed up to $750 million for programs that help low-income customers benefit from clean energy. The budget also includes a $30 million carve-out for solar workforce training, with a focus on reaching individuals from diverse and or underserved backgrounds. Getting that carve-out for her community was a hard-fought battle. According to Davis, organizations like hers had to work hard to be heard in the negotiation process. But the end result was a breakthrough that may have forever changed the dynamics of energy policymaking in the state. See, what had happened was, you know, the big greens were at the table and they were, they were exercising the traditional proxy that they enjoyed, you know, speaking for everybody, speaking on behalf of the environmental community, And um, there was a disruption uh, in in the process of the Fiji legislation whereby we, uh, the black and brown frontline communities, uh, elbowed our way to the table and ended that uh, basic traditional practice of white organizations speaking for us. So there was this disruption that happened in the apparatus of creating legislation, creating regulations, oversight of the marketplace. And that's when organizations like Blacks and Green began to really rise to the forefront of 
I mean, we were already a known and a known entity and a trusted brand, but in the realm of energy policy, that that whole that interruption created a whole new time. So we have a seven hundred million dollar allocation, of which there is a negotiated a thirty million dollar carve out, which you know, which was a massive victory in and of itself because the legislation and the purpose of the legislation was new and different. But the idea that black and brown communities were expressing their sovereign authority over how, you know, some of that money was going to be spent, that was new and wonderful. Blacks and Green is now using funds it received in the 2016 energy bill to grow awareness around the benefits of energy efficiency. The organization also offers solar workforce training programs, as well as learning sessions on fresh water, food, and creating walkable cities to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But the work doesn't end with some new training programs. Davis notes there are still many underlying issues that are undermining the health and wealth in African-American communities all across the country. You cannot expect people who are stressed. There's financial, there's health, there's social-spiritual ways that we're just in trauma. We are looking for ways to increase our health and wealth, and we're specifically at Blacks and Green helping people to connect the dots that the new green economy is certainly a way that here in the epoch of equity, we certainly um, are expecting our governments, our corporations, our agencies, our philanthropies, We're expecting all of the players to uh, get their skin in the game to help level the playing field. We didn't get this way overnight. We won't get out of it overnight, but we won't get out of it at all if people are not just really honest about the structural barriers that persist where the distribution of public resources is concerned. Our schools are not, 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 not getting the education that Uh, our children deserve about the climate crisis, about um, careers uh, for a future forward world. And so, you know, in, in our community, you know, you knock us down, you charge us for falling, and then, um, you know, just wonder why we're, we're, you know, we're not doing more with the little that we have. It's not fair. You talk about energy burdened as part of the analysis of what percentage of household income people are spending on their uh, on their utilities whether it's you know gas their gas bill their water bill or their uh, electric bill we are stressed beyond belief right now in our community going forward davis believes things will be different when it comes to crafting clean energy policy in the state of illinois Armed with the experience of working on the Future Energy Jobs Act, Davis says she and her allies are now helping shape the next iteration of Illinois energy policy and fulfill the vision of creating self-sufficient and sustainable communities for people of color. The self-interest that has been so long uh, neglected, the self-interest of African-American companies and households, which have been so long neglected, um, legislators are just not falling for the easy okie doke this time around. And there's going to be uh, a lot more and a different kind of pushback, um, a different kind of player helping shape the final 
structure of of the clean energy jobs act that is that is being negotiated right now as the second iteration of this uh of this clean energy economy that we're building we just feel like there needs to be a lot 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 more money um organizations that are already activated on the ground like blacks and green need to be supported and boosted and invested some people like to talk about the capacity of black organizations capacity ain't nothing but uh some zeros and if you're going to compare apples to apples just make sure that um you recognize that black run uh black serving organizations uh deserve to have the same levels of funding that other organizations have historically enjoyed in order to exhibit that capacity and self-help in our communities the way we're committed to doing. Now, to round out this episode, we turn to an interview I had with Tony Reams on a trip to Detroit in early March. We talked about the concept of energy justice. We talked about politics and the policy-making process. And we discussed how climate and energy issues rank among different African-American groups. Here's that conversation. So my name is Tony Reams. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Michigan School for Environment and Sustainability. I've been there for about six years now, um, and I teach classes in energy justice, uh, green development, which kind of focuses on green building, um, and the energy justice class looks at uh, energy access, affordability, and disparities. Yeah, so just Give me a little more detail on what energy justice means, because I hear that term, and even more often I hear environmental justice. I think a lot of people have a sense of what it is, but I'm curious how you define it. Yeah, um, so energy justice for me kind of stands on the shoulders of the environmental justice movement and environmental justice research, which really allowed us to look at disparities across race, class, and place. Um, And so with energy justice, we kind of focus just on energy, but also um, take those disparities into account. And so are there racial disparities in, say, access to solar? Um, Do policies create these disparities and also allow them to persist? Um, Are there disparities in affordability that we can look at across race, geographic region, um, and uh, kind of socioeconomic status? I'm curious, does climate come up in that discussion or is it really in the energy segment? Yeah, um, I kind of view, and I think some others view energy justice as kind of that bridge between uh, environmental justice, which is really reactive to environmental justice bads and decisions that were made, and then the climate justice movement and research, which is trying to be proactive and prevent disparities uh, as a result of climate change. And because a lot of those decisions are focused on energy, whether it's our generation, our consumption, Um, I think energy justice is kind of the great bridge for environmental and climate justice. Are you seeing people really mobilize around that this year? Yes. Um, It's a really exciting time. Um, I kind of got into this topic unexpectedly, um, and I'm really glad that I am because I think the movements on energy democracy, state policies that are allowing utilities to decide what their energy mix is going to be for the next 15 years, is really allowing people to get involved and say, we don't want to do things the same way we used to do them. We want cleaner energy. We want more energy democracy. We want to play a role in energy decision making. And so energy justice uh, provides a framework to both study and mobilize around those topics. 
My understanding is that even when it comes to pushing programs that are good for everyone in terms of being cleaner, better for the climate, reducing pollution, that discussion is largely dominated by white people. And they're the ones either, you know, with the lawyers on their staffs, they're the ones making the decisions. It just happens to be that those are some of the biggest voices in the room and doing so often good work. But it just means that there isn't all the voices in the room that there needs to be. How are you finding uh, you can engage with other segments of the American population and get them excited about this stuff? Yeah, I think one thing about energy decision making is that um, it is very technocratic, right? Mm-hmm. And so it requires um, organizations and communities to really kind of dig into the weeds and really make it real for people in their communities to get engaged. And so I think making connections to like public health, saying, you know, because of this coal plant, you know, people in your community have asthma. Um, and, and making it real to people that, um, renewable energies are affordable now. And so if we focus on renewables, we can bring down energy costs. And so it's really trying to figure out how do you make this connection to energy more than just paying a utility bill, but make it real and holistic in people's lives. And um, I've seen some really exciting movements around that um, here in Detroit. Uh, There's a group called Work For Me Detroit, um, or Work For Me DTE, which is the utility company here in Detroit. And community groups have mobilized together to decide that they want the utility to have a different energy mix, which means either solar on people's roofs, um, large-scale solar um, in other parts of the community, ownership in what type of energy is being produced. And what you saw is thousands of people actually commenting on the Public Service Commission case, um, which had never happened before in, in that mass. And so the community groups focused really hard on energy education, um, trying to explain to people what is an integrated resource plan, why is it important to you, and how can you get involved, and it really worked. That's so interesting to hear. Yeah, because my understanding is, you know, the environmental justice movement has existed in this country for a long time, often led by people of color, the First Nations groups, um, indigenous groups, um, native groups, as well as African-Americans and others who are often on the front lines of these issues, but that hasn't always translated into decision-making power. And so that's interesting to see that they're getting involved with dockets and actually getting into the process, that technocratic process you mentioned. And I think it's really about, because most of us in our daily lives never really engaged in you know, making public comments because we don't really understand the process or we, I, I certainly uh, have not. <laughs> and it, I and have it to is, read it for my work, but I yeah, do it so begrudgingly. I mean, that's exactly. <laughs> I didn't start doing this until it was a part of my work. Um, uh, I did research on environmental justice and um, wrote a, a book chapter with a colleague looking at public participation. And you still see this lack of public participation, although that's a part of the definition of environmental justice and supposed to be a part of how agencies operate. Um, but again, like, how do you compete with, you know, somebody who's struggling to pay their bills, somebody who's trying to take care of their family, working multiple jobs, to tell them they need to go to a public meeting about some decision that they already feel like they can't do anything about? And so the onus should be on government agencies, um, utilities, to really prove to citizens that um, they have their best interest at heart. And it can also be just terribly boring. <laughs> Very, so you got people's, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but I think it, it is and it isn't. Obviously, when your needs are not being met, that becomes a very right. visceral issue, right. and it's no longer boring. And but. if you show up and there are a lot of lawyers and they're speaking legalese, and you're already feeling like you can't understand it, um, 
yeah, so how do you make this information, um, I think, amenable to people's limited attention span, limited time, um, and real for their communities, right? So, like, if African-American communities are disproportionately burdened with coal plants, if poor white rural communities are disproportionately overburdened with coal plants, like, make that real for those communities, right? And so, but also thinking about jobs, um, so if, you know, if an employer is leaving town because it's being shut down, you know, what is the conversation around uh, new jobs for those people? Uh, and so I do think trying to have a more holistic conversation about this and instead of it just being one-sided is how you make it real for people. So I know that you participated in some focus groups here in Detroit to get a read on, you know, how are African-Americans engaging with climate issues, with energy and environmental issues. Is that right? Yeah, Have that, yeah right? that was right. So what were your takeaways? And explain how it was set up just so we get the sense of what you were trying to achieve there. You see on TV the the two-way mirror and, you know, a lot of times it's those kind of marketing focus groups on a product. <laughs> so it was really... Was it like that? It was really like that. It was really <laughs> cool to sit on the other side of the two-way mirror. Um, the moderator was amazing um, watching how he kind of moderated the groups. And so. And who was in the group? Um, so we had three groups. There was a, um, an older African American female non college educated group, an older African American male non college educated group, and a millennial um, college educated group. Um, so, so interesting to see similarities across those groups um, as the conversation went from understanding the general sentiment about how the country is the direction of the country. Um, and so kind of consistent negative um, perceptions, which I think a lot of us have right now. Yeah, um, yeah. But also when we started talking about, you know, concerns about the environment and um, how people feel about climate change or environmental justice. And um, here in Michigan, I think Flint is at the forefront of everybody's mind. So, um, so even the idea that Flint was an environmental justice issue, um, but is also connected to just larger um, environmental decisions that then jump to climate change and you know the loss of water here in Michigan because corporations are drilling for spring water um, mm -hmm. and also protecting the Great Lakes. And so there was this connection to the idea of where people kind of live, play, and work and, um, and how a lot of decisions being made to protect those places are by people that aren't in the community or from um, the community. And so a lot of the folks in the focus groups felt like um, African-Americans are not able to engage in the decision-making process, and, and that has great impacts for, for the community. And so, yeah, what were some other themes that came up? What about from the millennials? I'm a millennial. I'm curious what they had to say. Yeah, I think um, for me, um, someone who is engaged in this all the time. I think it was very eye-opening for me. And, and it made me think about some family members, too. And I'm like, do I really talk about climate with my family? I, I really don't. And so, Was there less interest than I, you might think? I don't think there was interest. I think there was um, a lot of the conversations were around just the priority, right? Like, So they uh, did already feel it was a priority? Or they're kind of like, every now and then I've heard it's an issue. Yeah, yeah. Like, I've heard about it. I know about it but there are all these other things, right? And so I think when communities, again, are overburdened with, you know, um, various stressors, um, it's really hard to prioritize one, especially that feels so far out. And I think um, 
you know, how to make the idea that this is happening now clear for people. Um, and so I think it'll be interesting to see what you hear in the different communities. Because, I mean, climate-wise, we are pretty blessed here in Michigan, right? We we always joke that everybody will try to move here <laughs> when the rest of the right. country gets all hot and has yeah. no water, right? Oh, totally. And so I think um, just the focus here in Detroit, definitely environmental justice issues are at the forefront, um, but maybe not so much the kind of climate change issues. Right. I think a lot of people... Um, a lot of people in the activist community say, you know, climate is the only issue. It is the one issue and everything relates to it, which is both true no matter, I think it's universally true just because climate does touch everything. But I don't think everyone agrees that it is the number one issue. And throughout this Democratic primary, we've seen people asking, why are they talking about healthcare so much in the debates? Right, right. But I don't know. Do you have a different view on that? Like, should we be prioritizing climate way more? Should it be the number one thing? And then we view other issues through that climate lens? Or do you think it's valid to say no we've got some immediate issues that we do need to prioritize and we can deal with climate simultaneously in the background how do you think about that order there that's really interesting um i think i'm I'm more of a systems thinker and so i do believe in the way you um, bring topics and issues to the forefront is to connect it to to other things right and so how is climate change uh, a health uh public health issue um, how is climate change or jobs or economic issue? Um, and so I think when you start making the, those connections, um, I said I got into this energy stuff pretty interestingly. Um, and so there was a project during the economic stimulus period in Kansas City uh, that was called the Green Impact Zone. So I talk about this a lot of times because this is kind of what pushed me into this energy space. And it was the idea that if you brought in you know, millions of dollars from the economic stimulus focused it on kind of green and the environment, could you make a change in a urban African-American community that had been disinvested for about 50 years? And so this idea of environmental sustainability, uh, greening the hood is kind of what was, was um, how people talked about, about it back then. But like, did that really matter? Were people thinking about sustainability? Were people thinking about being green? Being green seems really expensive because you think about Whole Foods and you know, things like that. Um, but it was really about connecting the idea of the environment and sustainability to people's everyday lives. And so is this a jobs creator? Is this going to bring down your energy bills? Um, is this going to make your house more comfortable to live in, make your commute more affordable because now you're using electric vehicles or a hybrid bus? And so I think we need to do the same thing for climate change. And if you talk to people in the community, um, they may not use the word climate change, but they talk about it being hotter or they talk about um, because here a lot of people don't have AC in their houses because it's been cool. And so they talk about, oh, well, now I need to buy a window unit or I'm thinking about getting AC in my house. Um, and so it might not be the term climate change, but noticing the changes in the climate is real. <laughs> well, in that Kansas example, did you find that people came to understand that, oh, green is good for my pocketbook? Or was it the other way around that they're like, oh, this is good for my pocketbook? And oh, great, it's green. Green is good for my pocketbook. Yeah, I think people did make that connection that we can, and, and that green is possible. I think mm. that was another part of it. Like green So it did is, become a, yeah, quite the focus. Yeah, green is not something that is only for other communities. Green can be in our community. Um, and I think that's the same thing about, you know, energy justice, climate justice. Like we can have solar, we can have geothermal, we can 
fight to shut down a coal plant and then say we don't want it to be some other polluting uh, facility on that site. Um, so we had an incinerator shut down here in Detroit that you know activists have been fighting for for decades. Um, and it shut down last year. And so now they're saying, okay, we, we got that win. We want to make sure whatever comes there is not in another environmental injustice or something that contributes to climate change. And so I think the possibility allows people to see even more possibilities. So when you have small wins, being able to capitalize on that for more wins um, is going to get more people engaged. I'm curious, did politics come up in the focus group in terms of what people wanted to see happen in the near-term future? And if so, did climate make its way into that? Or were there different sets of policies? Because I think, just as a context, you know, African Americans are a huge voting block for the Democratic Party, but they've almost become an assumed voting block. You know, there's been some coverage on that. And some people in the community saying, hey, don't assume we're going to be here. Get to listen to what we have to say. So I'm curious, in the Detroit example, what did people have to say about what their priorities were? Yeah, I think when we when we talked about public policy priorities, I do think healthcare came up. I think protecting the environment actually came up, which um, mm-hmm. you know, and again, like I say, these environmental justice issues are at the forefront of people's minds. So decisions that don't impact people negatively, um, and so in the millennial group, conversations started around like food justice um, and how we ensure that. Large corporations are not responsible for all our food, but people actually have food that is healthy and clean. That's interesting. And I'm curious, what about cost and affordability? How high did that rank overall? Because that is a big issue, which I think can come in tension with climate policy. At least we hear that a lot when it comes to Democrats versus Republicans on how bold to be and what the price tag is going to be. And so how does that get translated into you know communities that are already feeling the pinch on their energy bills, say? Are they worried about clean energy policy hurting them? Like I was saying in that Kansas case, the transition to these cleaner energy sources or greener energy sources there is a segment of the population that pushes the idea that that'll be more expensive. And so right. for people that are already cash strapped, um, yeah. they will be more cautious about moving in that direction. And I think the same thing happens now with, um, you know, this transition to cleaner energy for climate change uh, adaptation or mitigation purpose. Uh, and so I do think that's a real concern for people. Um, will that raise my costs? Um, like I say, there are factions that push that narrative. Even as communities are trying to engage and mobilize in this process, they're like, hey, be careful because, you know, your bill's going to go up because now we got to build this new, you know, infrastructure. Or the argument that the only people putting solar on their rooftops are high-income white folks. And so low-income African-Americans or Hispanic populations, you're going to bear the brunt of the energy system now because they don't have to pay into it. And I saw that same argument a decade ago for energy efficiency. Um, and so the, that, that narrative that, you know, there's care about energy equity, <laughs> which really just allows, you know, entities to continue their their status quo. And it's not a, a genuine concern about energy equity. Okay, so you're saying energy <laughs> equity is being used as a tool to maintain the status quo of largely yes. fossil fuel companies because it creates nervousness and right. concern about cost when that's, that's not really an issue. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, there are studies that show that there may be minimal costs or very little costs. Um, 
And so getting that information to people so they are empowered to, you know, push forward and say, no, okay, we do. You know, and then what costs do you include? Do you include public health costs? Do you include... The public always ends up paying one way or the other. Yeah, exactly, right? So if if we continue down this path, people continue to be sick. Um, That's the ultimate cost. (laughs) And then we, you know, we burn up. I mean, I don't know, right? And so... Yeah, I mean, they... Like you say, studies show that the cleaner energy solutions produce cost savings over time. But when you get a little further in the weeds, it's sort of like, when do those savings appear and right, for whom right. and all that kind of stuff. And then what ends up happening when you do have disasters like the wildfires in California is that the people that prepare for next time are those that can actually afford it. And so, again, from an energy justice, energy equity perspective, like how do you ensure that... Um, you know, your your communities of color and low-income communities are actually resilient to, you know, what will be increased disasters. And I think that planning is still lacking in, in most communities uh, because, like I say, people who can adapt, people can go get a power wall or whatever will do it. Right. Um, and so they're ready for the next time. Because whether or not it costs more, yeah, the access question is, is separate, yeah. but some but related. Um, and yeah, do you have examples of solutions there? Do you know of organizations that are finding ways to put these more resilient, clean technologies in African-American communities' hands? Yeah, I think, um, I think a lot of that is coming from the grassroots and actually seeing communities be able to take advantage of policies that, you know, are passed and the intent is there. Um, but the execution and implementation is always where you have <laughs> the challenges to make it real. And so there's a group in um, Chicago called Blacks and Green. Um, Naomi Davis has been doing this for a few years um, or yeah, some years trying to create a sustainable square mile um, just south of University of Chicago uh, in the Woodlawn neighborhood. And so with the recent passage of the Future Energy Jobs Act in Illinois, you know, she pulled together, you know, all the people she knew to say like, hey, let's take advantage of this opportunity and make sure that the promised investments are are actually realized here in our community. And so she created the green living room where she's like training people on on solar, on energy efficiency. And then she's also connecting that to, you know, how do you stave off gentrification? And like I say, she just took advantage. I mean, this is stuff she's been preaching for years, but having this opportunity to really make it real and, you know, because, again, gentrification is at the forefront of people's mind, then they're more willing to get on board and say, like, yeah, let's save our community and let's do it in a green, sustainable, you know, way. Um, How does it stave off gentrification? I think the big part of it is viewing clean energy as a, an affordability or housing affordability solution, viewing energy efficiency that way. So you make the house more efficient. And then you add renewable energy. And so then that person has a really lower energy bill, which is usually the second highest cost for housing um, after your mortgage or rent. Um, and so if you can bring that cost down, then you have money to you know pay your rent, pay your mortgage, uh, buy food, <laughs> do all right. these other things that you might have to make trade-offs throughout the year. When the guy comes knocking saying, like, we'll buy your house for you know half, mm. half of what it's worth. And if you're already stressed, you know, economically, then you might say, okay, well, I can get out of this house. I know I'm going to lose it anyway to taxes maybe. And so here's my chance to get something instead of nothing. But if you're now affordable, clean, green, energy efficient, then you can demand um, a higher rate or you can stay, right? And so I think that's how that's how I view it. So to wrap up, I guess, do you have any, what do you think that 
people, specifically white people, <laughs> need to know about the intersection of uh, engaging the black African-American community here in the U.S. and climate? What is the sort of takeaway you think that, that folks should should have? Yeah, um, it was interesting when in the focus groups, all three of them, when we asked, um, you know, who was like the leading voice on climate now? Um, it was interesting because I was thinking that African-Americans would have talked about Obama because in my mind, Obama was like the green president. But it just says how much the last three years has kind of erased um, <laughs> Who's Obama? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> like, whoa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Flashback. But, um, but it was funny because each group, at least one person mentioned Al Gore. And I was like, wow. I had, I mean, I hadn't even thought about Al Gore as much as far as like <laughs> all the Gore's new. Al Gore's going to be so excited to I hear this. I know he will be, yeah. He's so been, we were like, working. oh, we were like, we need to let him know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and one person said Greta in the millennial group. But I think a, what I took from that is that there were no representative climate activists that were really known to the community. Um, but if, if the thought is that there is a white individual who is kind of the messenger of climate change, how do you connect that message again to people's real lives, right? And what does that mean in communities? Um, and so it can't just be that polluting entities close, but like, what are they replaced with? I think, that, I mean, for me, I think that's the big thing. Like, how can, how can I, if I'm living in an urban uh, majority African-American community, see something in my neighborhood that says, okay, my community is a part of the climate solution. Um, and I think that's, I think that's the, 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 real, the real key is not talking to people or at people, but speaking with people and bringing people along in the movement. Um, and I think from the focus groups, that's what I got was missing, that nobody's really coming to say like, hey, this is how you can get involved. Um, like I've had friends from high school because of stuff I post on social media, like, hey, I really want to talk about climate change here at home. And I grew up in like a small rural town in South Carolina. And like, I was stumped too, because I was like, well, gosh, how do I make, you know, how do I make this real for people at home? Like, you know, I need to think about like, what are, what are some of the challenges in my hometown instead of me saying like, oh, you need to ban plastic, you know, like, okay, does that, is that right. real? <laughs> you know, so, yeah. yeah. So well, also know. the bans on plastic sometimes hurts like minority-owned businesses they the most do because they... when like that's such a <laughs> tiny drop in the bucket overall. Yeah. 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 And so, um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I think the way we're gonna all you know do this is make it real for individual communities and realize that you know there are differences, cultural differences. And so whatever solution might work in one neighborhood may not work in another. And so realizing that and not being afraid to, you know, make those little changes, you know, and then actually have people on your team that know the community. <laughs> I mean, that's key, right? Right. Um, yeah. And so do you think that um, there should be a little bit more of an effort or do you think that it would be helpful if there was more of like an individual or like leader, whether it was someone in the arts or a politician who was black and was leading on these issues do you think that yeah. would be helpful yeah the millennial group brought up lebron james they were like maybe lebron james was talking about bicycles? climate change yeah. <laughs> that's good yeah so um, van jones yeah I see I don't, and van jones didn't come up and even when i talk to my students a lot of them don't remember um the greens <laughs> are and so i think there is there yeah. has definitely been a disconnect between what we did in the early or said in the early 2000s and kind of the climate the climate change denial or um 
Yeah, yeah. Well, where we are now in kind of this political fight, I think, has definitely somewhat um, suppressed, like, like I said, the the optimism that we had in in, um, hmm. in the mid two thousands. I guess. Well, it sounds yeah. like maybe a little less optimism, but openness to engagement. I think that is key. Um, I think what's missing is. Uh, basically from the fake folks groups is that there is a, a lack of engagement. Um, and I don't know if that goes back to our initial conversation about how the topics come up and what the priorities are. Uh, and so, I mean, we have a lot on our plates right now. Right. And so how do, again, how do we make climate change, you know, uh, a generalized topic that people understand and understand its connections to all these other things that um, to the specific community and what they need. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You got a lot of work to do. (laughs) (laughs) We all do. Right. It's like, it's all about making connection. I mean, I think that's the key. Um, Yeah. Make the connection. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you walking me through this, sharing your thoughts. And that's it. That is our fifth path to zero episode brought to you by third way. You can find all the episodes in this series via the link in our show notes or you can find them on the Political Climate Podcast feed. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and more. Thank you for tuning in. Until soon.